put a little tweet on Twitter this morning. Simply put, it says, we all fight the same battle. We all fight the same enemy. We all fight for the glory of the same king. But we all fight in different battlefields. I'm not sure what your battlefield is today, but I want to remind you that we're all in the same battle. We all fight the same enemy. We all fight for the glory of the one king, the same king, and his name is Jesus. But you're on a battlefield today, and that battlefield is a battlefield that is unique to you. It has similarities to other battlefields that are represented in this room, and, and, and we all have similarities about the battle that we're waging for the kingdom, for the glory of God, and, and the enemy that, that seems to bombard us. But, but we have an individual battlefield that we're all engaged in, and how we do battle is extremely important, I believe, in these last days. We learn that John has been inspired of the Holy Spirit to write in a very difficult time for the church. Many believe that uh, around 70 AD that the Apostle John wrote his gospel account. It's not his gospel, but it's, it's a gospel of Jesus. It's the message of Jesus. And in writing this gospel account of the, the message, the miracles, the missions, and the Messiahship of Jesus, he's writing to a, a group of, of believers that are living in a very difficult and a very troubling time. Up until 70 AD, when John supposedly wrote this, that's the best we can determine is the date, There's been a lot that has happened in the last seven years since Jesus has died. That's why he called it 70 AD. The first 34 years were very, very troubling for the church. You see, in 34 AD, I believe that's when Simon Peter and Paul were also martyred for the cause of Christ. There's been heavy persecution from Jerusalem and Judeo culture and Judaism and around Israel against the church. And because of that, the church somewhat begins to scatter. But by the time that John writes this, this, this gospel account in 70 AD, the church has been under more persecution, greater martyrdom than possibly it was in the first 34 years because by now, by the time he writes this, over half of the disciples of Jesus, the 12, have been martyred for the cause of Christ, over half. And it's not very long to the, the other half will also be martyred, not very long since the writing of this. And through an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, John is aware that, that greater persecution and continued persecution is going to remain for the church, for those who profess faith in Jesus. And so he writes this gospel, I believe, as an encouragement to the church to be bold, not only in their reception of the gospel, but their proclamation of the gospel, and in their belief that Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is still reigning and ruling on his throne. Jesus has not abdicated his throne. He is not an absentee landlord. He is still reigning and ruling on the throne. And this Jesus who is not dead, who is alive, is a Jesus that they can not only put their faith and trust in, in salvation, but in the service of their king as they are literally being asked now to lay down their lives for the gospel of Jesus. It's going to cost them everything to not only believe in the gospel, but to promote the gospel of Jesus. The troubling time for the church. 
And the undertone of this gospel is not only the, the, the revealing of the gospel of Jesus, but it's a, a reminder to the church to rely upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords for their sufficiency and their strength in the midst of these very difficult times. I believe there's a twofold purpose for the book of John. It's to unbelievers, to reveal Jesus, but it's also to, to encourage the church to, to rely upon and look to Jesus because Jesus is the main focus of the gospel that the Holy Spirit is leading John to record, to be bold. I think that's a message that the church still needs today, a message to be bold. Because we have a tendency, I think, in the culture that we live in and in, 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 in what we hear in, even in the United States, have a tendency to call persecution, have a tendency to be cowards or complacent or silent when, when we should, in fact, be bolder than we have ever been before. Because the days are going to get darker and persecution is going to increase and we are going to be tempted and tried and tested by the enemy and he's going to try to silence the gospel and silence our witness and cause us to coward in our faith is to prevent the gospel from going forth and transforming lives for the glory of God. And, and I believe it's coming. It's coming. We've seen in the last 10 years an incredible shift against those of us who believe in the gospel and the life-changing power of that gospel and how it translates into a transformed life and how we should live for the Lord. To be bold. And so John encourages them, he encourages us, really two things. He wants his audience, first of all, in their boldness, to receive the gospel of Jesus. He wants them to receive the gospel of Jesus. Now let's take a look at the text in verse 24. In uh, John 21, the very next to last verse, we see that his ultimate purpose and his objective under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to project the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's to project it in a way in the form of a testimony, a personal testimony of a man who himself has been transformed by this gospel. You ask, what is the gospel? It's a good question. What is the gospel? We hear a lot about it, but what is it? It's simply the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the person of Jesus. It is what he came to do. That means he came to, he was born of a virgin named Mary. He lived a sinless life. He eventually was crucified for sins that he did not commit. Our sins against God died in our place only to, to rise from the dead three days later and in that resurrection to give us hope that we as sinners can overcome our sin through faith in him as our Savior and as Lord of our lives. That's basically the jest or the contents of the gospel of Jesus. Very simple. That's what it means to understand the word the gospel. So he came to project, to testify, to lay out the gospel of Jesus. And you see this theme throughout this gospel account of John in his personal testimony. But as we dissect verse 24, we see some interesting aspects as he begins to, to identify and to define this gospel. We see basically five things about the gospel. First of all, we see in verse 24, the gospel transforms lives. The gospel transforms lives. Yes, 
It is a work of the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God does it through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. And once that gospel is received, that gospel transforms literally the lives of those who put their faith and hope and trust in that gospel message in Jesus as their Savior. Notice he opens up in verse 24, this is the disciple. He is identifying himself now as the writer, and he is saying to us as we read this today, I am a disciple of Jesus. Those of us who have been impacted by the gospel are disciples of Jesus, who have been transformed by the gospel message. John was called, he was chosen, he was called, he then committed to abandon everything and to follow Jesus, and he was commissioned now to testify, to be a witness of the gospel. He was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Why was he a follower of Jesus? Because he had experienced firsthand this gospel message, and that gospel lived out in the life of Jesus through faith in Jesus has transformed his life. The gospel is many times talked about in the New Testament as something that has the power to transform the lives of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. That gospel message transforms us. It makes us new creations in Christ. We become new creatures with a new heart, a new mind, a new life, a new way of living. Everything about us after we place our faith and trust in Jesus because we heard the gospel, everything changes. Your life is not the same. It's an oxymoron, I think, for people to believe that they have somehow trusted in Jesus. But they can continue then after that, what they call an experience of placing their faith in Jesus, to live their lives the same way they did prior to coming to faith in Christ. The gospel literally transforms lives. And it transforms your life if you're a disciple of Jesus. It changes everything about who you are and how you live and who you are in him. It, it just revolutionizes everything about us. And we're going to be in the, year, in, in the months to come, uh, as we begin to sort of, of uh, the pastoral staff and I, we're, we're kind of going through sort of a, a resetting of our vision, our direction. And, and as we do that, the gospel is, become, is going to become more central, more centric in what we do than it has ever done or has before. Because the gospel is that message about Jesus Christ that makes the difference between us and the world. And the gospel transforms lives. It transforms John. The gospel is transparent as well. It said, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's bearing witness about these things. Now, he talks about these things, but he's not bearing witness. He's not giving testimony simply about the things. The reason he identifies the things that Jesus did was to prove that Jesus, in fact, was who he claimed to be, the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he came to, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on a cross for sins he didn't commit in order to raise or to be raised from the dead on the third day so that 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 thing that he did on the cross becomes the primary thing that he did and he's bearing witness now to the fact he is, he is, his gospel is transparent in the sense that it is shining a light. The, the words that are written on this page, basically I think what he's saying are, are, are to be transparent to the point as you look into the words, as you study the words, as you read the words, he wants to highlight, he wants to bring out from these words the life, the ministry, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And everything about the gospel and everything about the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. The gospel is centric in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And he's reminding his readers that that he's seeking through these words to, to expose, to reveal, to shine the light on Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus and only Jesus. And I think as we live out our lives and as we as a church seek to minister and to, to, to engage in mission and all these wonderful things we're doing, that Jesus should be the primary focus of everything that we do. We need to talk less about Emmanuel and more about Jesus. Because it is Jesus who is at the center of the stage. It is Jesus who is in the spotlight of the gospel of John and the gospel that we have believed in. It is Jesus who must be the spotlight that we reflect and reveal to the world as we are lights shining in a dark world. And as they look and as they see, they see the light. And that light is Jesus, not ourselves. Notice the gospel not only is transformational and transparent, but the gospel is transferable. Notice he said, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. The word written is an interesting word. It's a word that conveys the idea of communication. And while John cannot personally stand before the congregations that read this after he wrote it and the individuals who read it after he wrote it, he can witness through the penmanship inspired of the Holy Spirit as a witness of what he has seen and what he has come to know and what he's come to believe and how Jesus has transformed his life. He's a a, a written witness. He penned these words as a testimony of his personal relationship with Jesus. And he's saying the gospel wasn't, wasn't meant and wasn't designed to keep to myself. It was designed to share with others. You have a testimony. I hope you do. There was a point in a time and a place in which you recognized that you were a sinner. You realized that Jesus was the solution and the answer to your sin. You turned from your life of sin and turned to him and trusted him as your Savior and Lord. And he breathed new life into you and you became a new creation in Christ. And your life was never the same. You have a testimony. I hope you do. If you don't, in in just a few minutes when we have an invitation, we invite you to come down and, and meet this Jesus that many of us, if not most of us, have already come to know. And he says here that this message is transferable. And if you had at your disposal the cure for cancer right now, would you keep it to yourself? More than likely not. And as horrific as cancer is, because it took the the life of my brother-in-law, Mike, who had late 50s, died a very early life. Tried everything he could, even some experimental medications as a guinea pig to offer himself as as an experimental person to, to, to see how these new forms of medicine work. He was not able to cure his cancer. But there's a greater disease that affects not just our lives here, but our lives in eternity. It's a disease called sin. And there's only one remedy for that sin, and it's Jesus. And because you have a testimony and you have the remedy, how dare you keep it to yourself? For the gospel that you have 
have encountered, the gospel that you have put your faith in, the gospel that has transformed your life has been given to you in order to be transferable to others. And it is you who, like John, are the living witness, the living testimony of what Jesus has done in and through your life and continues to do. And it's that testimony that needs to be shared with a lost world. Notice not only is it transferable, but it's trustworthy. He said, and we know that his testimony is true. We know that his testimony. Notice, we know. Many scholars debate over what that means. John is writing and said, we. What does that mean, we know? And I had a speculation. I'm going to share it with you. It's not as concrete as I'd like it to be, but I think that maybe he's talking about we, meaning that we himself and others know that the testimony that is recorded here in John because this is basically a third-person verb here, which is indicating that it belongs not to John, but to a third person, a third party. I think he's talking about Jesus, the testimony that's recorded here in this passage, the testimony about Jesus. We know that this testimony about Jesus is true. In other words, he's substantiating the fact that that what he has written in this gospel can be substantiated in a court of law by by more than just himself. There are many, many others who can substantiate that what I have written in this gospel is valid. It is true. It holds up in a court of law. But notice he says that we know. I think it's important to understand that they know. They know that they know that the testimony of Jesus has impacted their lives, that Jesus is a reliable person. And I think it was given in a very difficult time to know that these believers who put their faith in Jesus can can understand that this gospel was intended to strengthen their faith, to anchor their faith, to know that they know that they know that no matter what anyone does to them, they cannot lose their salvation. To know that once they are saved, they are forever safe. And that their salvation is granted and secured by them by the Lord Jesus himself. But notice, the gospel is also true. And I think the intent of that word is to help bring comfort to them to know that what they have staked their lives on is true. Have you ever doubted or questioned or wondered if the truth about Jesus is really true? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't think many of us would be that honest in this place. But I I must admit that I myself in younger years have questioned the truthfulness of the gospel and wondered, what if all of this is just something somebody made up? How do I know this is really true? I mean, what about all that? Is this just something that John just woke up and decided to do one day and now we have... Is it really true? And he says, no, that thee know that his testimony is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. It's not just something that John made up. It came through inspirational Holy Spirit, and it comes as truth to us. It is true. I was, last week, I had the privilege, oh, this is Sunday. Seems like a lot longer than that, but... Sometime I was uh, with Amy and our three grandchildren, um, and uh, you know, grandparents, it's great being a grandparent, isn't it? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? It's great to be a grandparent. And when you're with your grandchildren, they live in North Carolina in a little place called Old Fort, and you're only there for like four days, uh, no is not in, in, the, in the equation for me. It's just not. I'm not going to discipline. I'm not going to say no. Whatever you want, it's fine. 
As long as it's not going to kill somebody or kill you, it's good. Or, or cause some sort of hurt or pain to you that's going to be seen by your mom or your dad when they come back. So anyway, and as long as there's no blood, it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm that permissive, but, you know, I'm, I'm very, very relaxed as a grandparent. It, it's really awesome. Of course, I was relaxed as a parent as well. My wife said she had four children instead of three. We had three, and then I was the fourth. Uh, I just, I was an old child that loved being around kids. Spent most of the time on the floor. But mom was in from work after we had spent some time with uh, the kids that day watching them. And, you know, when mom comes in after the grandparents are there, everything changes. You have them calm and cool. And then mom comes in, changes the dynamics, and things begin to happen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know why it changes, but it just changes. And so I was sitting there, and uh, uh, Caroline, who is two years old, almost three and about a month and a half, cutest little thing you've ever seen. Um, has a carnal nature, actually. Um, Grayson was playing with, with a train. It's his train. He has all the Thomas trains. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Thomas trains? He was playing with that. And Caroline decides that she wants it, and so she reaches over to grab it from him, and he says, no. What happens after that? There's a fight for a toy. There's an almost three-year-old, beautiful little girl who decides in her carnal nature, I want what you have, and I'm going to take it from you. Grayson, who is four, and about four and a half, is a little bit stronger and is able to ward her off. Well, what she does, because mom's home, is to do what? He won't give me that. He won't give me that. And so mom, who hasn't been aware of what's going on, comes in and says, Grayson, give that to her. Don't take that from her. Because she said, he took it from me. He took it from me. I say, I hate to say this, Mom, but I sat here and witnessed this. And I can tell you for a fact that Grayson was playing with it first. Caroline reached to grab it and tried to take it from him. It really should stay with Grayson. I was a witness to what happened. A witness to the truth. John is saying, I was a witness to the truth, and I came to set the record straight. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He did what he came to do, and he is, in fact, raised from the dead, and he is alive. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you too, like me, can be saved. He wants his audience to receive the gospel. He doesn't want there to be any confusion because you remember earlier we talked about in John 21 where he sets the record straight about something, misunderstanding some rumor about the fact when Simon Peter asked about, about John and Jesus said, don't worry about him. If I want him to remain alive until I come, what's that to you? And the rumor was that John was going to be alive when Jesus returned and John didn't want anybody to, to, to believe the rumor, to believe the lie. He wanted them to believe the truth and so he set the record straight. And John is saying again, in this gospel, I have set the record straight and there are many who can collaborate my witness that what I am saying is true. Josh McDowell sought out to disprove Christianity, but in his quest to disprove Christianity himself saw the overwhelming evidence and placed his personal faith and trust in Jesus. And when we receive this gospel, it is truth that will impact and change your life. It will change your marriage. It will change your family. And I believe it's the only hope that we have to bring true, lasting, eternal transformation in our world. The government can't do it. 
political correctness won't do it. It it transforms and changes everything. And he wants his audience to receive it. Secondly, he wants us then to rely on the greatness of Jesus. There's the greatness of Jesus. Interesting, it tucked away in this very last verse. And if you've ever read John 21, you might have a tendency to, to read this quickly and just go on to, to, you know, somewhere else. But there's a lot tucked away in this, in this verse, in verse 25. He's saying to them that as you, in these latter days, as the days become more evil, as persecution begins to increase, I want you to find your strength, your purpose, your hope, your life in Jesus. Rely upon him, and in him you will find the strength and the resource that you need because Jesus is not, in fact, dead. He is alive. He is reigning and ruling on the throne. And because he is there, no matter what you go through, as you look to him, you will find what is necessary and what is needed to take you through these troubled times. Rely on the greatness of Jesus, for Jesus is a great God. He is a great God. He has not abdicated his throne. He is not an absentee landlord. He is sitting and reigning on his throne, and he is a great God who cares about us and who is actively involved, and he's working right now presently in and through our lives. No matter what our circumstance or situation is, he is still moving, and he's still working, and he's still alive, and he's still active. We may not sometimes see him or feel him or know that he is there, but his presence is guaranteed, for he is a great, great Jesus who is not unaware of where we are and what we're going through, but is very much aware. And so he reminds them here, he is undeniable. I like like these, these adjectives. He is undeniable. Notice John says, now there are. Now there are. The fact is that Jesus is. And his work is ongoing. And there are some things that we can not only sink our teeth in, that we can anchor our faith in. There are some things that we can rely on. There are some things that we can trust in. Because Jesus is, there are many things that Jesus not only has done, but he is continuing to do. He is still actively working on his throne. He is undeniable. You know, we have a tendency, I think, to live in a world that wants to dispute and discredit our Jesus. They want to dispute his, his authenticity. They want to dispute his words. They, want to, they, they, they have no understanding of who we believe in. But as you take a look, look at the text, now there are, John is saying, hey, these are the facts. They are undeniable facts about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he is presently doing. You can deny him, you can dispute him, but no matter what arguments that we may bring up or, or what, what denial we may suggest or no matter how we may come up, you just can't deny the fact that Jesus is alive. He is sitting on his throne and is actively working today. And so he is in his greatness and his greatness is undeniable. Secondly, he is unlimiting. He is unlimiting. Now there are also many other things. Notice it says there are also many other things. Circle that word, many. It is a word that seems to suggest here in this text there's a whole lot more. 
that not only has Jesus done, but Jesus is doing. You cannot limit the activity of Jesus by just a record or what we remember or what we retain or what we may think we see. Jesus is unlimited in his activity and what he's doing. And I think sometimes if you're not careful, you'll go about the business of your day-to-day activities and, and fulfilling all the things that you have on your to-do list. And, and you may see him here or there, but that doesn't mean that there's not more that he's doing than what you are aware of or more than what you've seen. There is much more in your life. He is more integrated in your life. He is more active in your life. He has more purpose in your life than what I think you and I sometimes are even aware of. I mean, the reality is that we are very tangible people. And and often what we see is the tangible world rather than the spiritual, the supernatural world. And and Jesus is more actively involved in your life and in an unlimited way. And he's saying to these people, in spite of all that you're going through, his activity is unlimited. It's not always perceived. It can't be always recorded. It can't always be visible. I mean, think about the times when, when you thought about going somewhere and you went another direction to that place and there was something catastrophic that happened in that route. Did you give... Recognition that, that maybe he was actively involved in that. Um, my brother-in-law was dying, and we had to leave earlier than we had planned. I hoped to be here for more of our vacation Bible school, but I was afraid that he would die. They only gave him two weeks to live, and so I wanted to get there as quickly as possible. I was already about, already about eight or nine days too late. And my, Because my sister's very private, she didn't tell us these things, but we went by um, on the way to, to my... Um, to my daughter and to visit with our grandchildren. We hadn't seen them since it had been about six months, which is way too long. And uh, we were there, and, and Mike looked like one of the, um, you know, the World War II, uh, World War II uh, the Jews who were in those consecration camps, and you see him standing, they were just stick figures. That's what he looked like. But we got there in time. He was very, very lucid that day. He was very very uh, awake and very alert and we were able to talk for about 30 or 40 minutes for a period of time on one of the days we were there and and we got to pray together and it was very very sweet time and then as i'm driving uh, to my daughter's we kept waiting for his death and and then uh, the day before we were supposed to leave he died and so the day after that we were able to spend some time again with cheryl in her house and uh, was able to to sit down with her and the kids and to talk and it's kind of unusual i don't have many people have died in our family so I don't get to pastor my family often, but it was kind of interesting that, uh, I mean, both my parents are alive, and so there's, we haven't had a lot of those things in our lives. So it was kind of a very unusual time for us. And as I was driving away, I was talking to my parents, and they said, you know, it was a providence of God that you were there before he died and there just after he died because we had scheduled this trip four months earlier not knowing that these things would happen. Is that an accident or coincidence or is that God's timing? It's just God's timing. I mean, can we believe that God is that kind of God who, who, who does unlimited, unlimiting, sometimes unrecognized things in our lives where we are, I mean, his activity in your life today is unlimiting. There are no boundaries. There's no way to measure how actively he's evolved. And you're going to miss many of his supernatural activities in your life if you're not spiritually tuned and spiritually alert to what he's doing. Other things that he's doing in your life today. Notice, are also many other things that Jesus did. I saw this and I thought, you know, Jesus is unstoppable. 
These are the many things that he did. Did you know that there were a lot of people that tried to stop him doing the things that he did? They didn't like it, they didn't want it, and they tried to stop him. And they finally arrested him and convicted him for things that he didn't do and hung him on a cross until he died. And they put his body in a tomb and rolled a big stone over thinking, there we've done it, he can't do anymore. And yet three days later, he rose from the dead, and he's still active today. They could not stop the influence and the activity of Jesus. He did what he did in spite of their attempts. They used everything they possibly humanly could to stop Jesus from doing what he did, and they couldn't stop him, and they still can't stop him today. That's why there's a lot of persecution today against the church. And all of it, I believe, is satanic. It is disguised in a false religion and a false belief, but it is all straight from hell. It's a part of the end times. It's demonic in its nature. And the objective of the enemy is to stop the activity of Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, no matter what he brings against you, and no matter what he brings against the church, he cannot stop it. It's, he is unstoppable. A bullet won't stop it. A beheading won't stop it. A billy club over someone's head that I read uh, about persecution that won't stop it because in that God was glorified and other people got saved through a beating that took place where they tried to stop this guy from preaching the gospel. Sixty countries right now are persecuting Christians across the United States according to the U.S. count. Sixty countries today are persecuting those who believe in Jesus. And one of these days will be the 61st. Not only is he unstoppable, but he is unbiased. I like this about Jesus. He's unbiased. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Notice where every one of them were to be written. I saw that. Every one of them. That's pretty specific. Every one of them. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John had in, intended and was thinking about in his mind when he recorded this. There were some things I could have written that I didn't write about. Matter of fact, not some, but many, 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 many others. And he was thinking about these incidences where, where, the, where, where Jesus and his message transformed these people's lives. There were many, many others. And whenever Jesus did a miracle or wherever Jesus did a ministry, he did it in order to touch and transform individual lives. And if you read throughout the Gospel of John, John many, many times helps us understand that in Jesus, in doing the many things that he did, singled out some people that were really out of the loop, that were really out of the normal, that were really out of the social elite or were looked down upon. They were people that were not preferential people, the, the, the political, the powerful, the prestigious. He, he, he was not... not prejudicial in who he ministered to and who he reached with his message. He was unbiased to each and every one of them. There were no standards, no requirements for, yeah, you're worthy and, and you're not. Each and every one of them he cared about and each and every one of them he sought to minister to and he took the time to relate and to share with them the gospel without any bias, without any prejudice, without any sort of you're worthy and you're not. And each and every one of the things that he did was intentionally designed to attract and to draw people unto himself, irregardless of who they were 
who they thought they were and in regards of who, of who society thought they were. And can I say that that's what I love about our church? We love some of the most difficult people to love than anybody I've known. You know how I know that? You know how I know that? Because you love me. <laughs> you know, one of our objectives when I came nine years ago was to be a multi-generational, multi-culture church. To be a church that reached anyone and everyone. We had neglected our neighborhood at the expense of reaching the suburbs. What's up with that? Now what we've done is the reverse. We've spent so much time of our resources and energy reaching the neighborhood that we've forgotten about the rest of Wichita. And some of that's going to change and that's why we did the Backyard Bible Club. Because I believe our mission is to reach the entire area of the greater Wichita area, not just right here. But we, as we share the message, must relate to each other in an unbiased way. Because that's how Jesus was. And then, that's how great he is. And I think that's the greatness of the gospel. And then lastly, he is uncontainable. He is uncontainable. Notice in the text, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What do you think about that? In other words, John is saying, if I were to write down everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did that I personally witnessed, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all that there is that I know about him. I'm not really sure that's exactly what he's saying, but what I do think that he's saying here is a little step further than that. I think he's saying and suggesting to those of us who read this and to those then and today, you cannot put and define God in such a way as to completely and totally explain him. For we too often ourselves become gods within our own understanding of God himself. God who is infinite. God who is infinite cannot be contained by our finite minds. Let me say that again. God who is infinite cannot be confined or constrained to your finite mind. You are a human being. You are flesh and blood. You are carnal. You are a human being. And I think many times we have conclusions and ideologies and theologies and all of these other ologies about Jesus and about God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as if we understand him completely. But you don't. You cannot. And you will not until you stand face to face before him after this life is over. Then you will know him as he is because you will be like him in every way. And until you are transformed in his likeness and stand before him, not in this life, but in eternal life, it is then that your mind will be opened. And I'm convinced that most of them, all of us will be blown away. Because God is greater than we could have ever imagined. He's more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. Words written on a page, John is saying, cannot define nor describe the greatness of Jesus. He is greater and grander than these words could contain. That's how great he is. And so he says to us that God is that great and Jesus is that great. Lastly, I want to, how do we, let's, let's very quickly do this. I got three minutes, so I'm going to do this very quickly. 
to be bold, to be a bold witness. I haven't preached in a week, so I'm all boiling over, okay? I've been working on this sermon for two weeks, so. To be a bold witness, four things. Receive the gospel. You can't be a bold witness until you receive the gospel. You just can't. You just can't. You can't testify to something you don't know. You can't die for something that you don't know. You got to receive the gospel in its full context. Romans 3.23 said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us. Even though while we were sinners, he died for us. He took upon himself our sin against God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In Romans 10, 9 and 10 said, If you confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You have to turn from your life of sin and turn to Jesus as your Savior. Without repentance, there can be no reconciliation. Receive the gospel. Number two, we need to rely on the gospel. One of the biggest tragedies and biggest mistakes, I think, post-conversion, after people are saved, is they jump back into a works religion thinking that they have to continue to do certain things in order to stay saved. But it's interesting that, that Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one could boast. After you're saved, you need to continue to rely on the gospel. Like I said earlier, we're going to talk about this in the, in the months to come. The gospel transforms your life and the fact that the gospel helps us understand that we didn't save ourselves, and because we can't and did not save ourselves, we then continue to rely on the truths of the gospel to help us understand how we are saved, and as we rely upon that gospel, it then begins to work its way into our lives and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. The gospel and, and, and the truths that are there are life transformational as you learn what they are, look to them, and rely upon them to walk as Jesus has called us to walk as disciples. Number three, we need to reflect the gospel. Romans 6, 1 says, shall we go on sinning that grace should abound? By no means. There are a lot of people, as I said today, in the church today who believe that they can make a simple prayer, to have, say a simple prayer, and after having publicly done something and then baptized, and then they can just go on and live their life the way they want to live it. I'm convinced that the gospel of John, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that John projects and, and says here, changes your life. It changes how you live. It changes who you are. It changes what you are. It changes what you do. And it should be reflected in a life of transformation and change. It's not something we do. It's something the Spirit of God does as we, as we rely upon Him, as we yield to Him, as He empowers us, transformation happens. And lastly, we need to repeat the gospel as often as possible. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, but it is the power of God unto salvation. And I wonder, are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus? I think most of us say, no, I'm not ashamed. Why aren't you sharing it? Well, that's the pastor's job. 
Yeah, it is my job, but it's your job. It's our job to repeat the gospel as often as possible in a world that is in darkness that needs light and that light can only come as we share our testimony about how the gospel has transformed our lives and how it can transform the lives of others. That's, I think, one of the highlights of what John wants to convey here to us today is that we must share this gospel with others. It wasn't meant to keep to ourselves. So I ask you, who do you know today that needs to hear? Who? The second question is when. When do I share it? And the third question is why not? Today. Let's pray.